I see you. All right, we we just got Billy Flippin to sit down, so it must be must be time to start. That's quite an accomplishment. Well, good morning. I'm Bud Brainerd. I'm another one of the pastors here at Lake Forest Davidson, and we're glad that you're here. We are going to continue today our Advent series. The series in, is entitled "O Come, Let Us Adore Him," and so we're looking at the, at the birth narratives and how various people come to worship uh, the Christ child. And uh, last week, uh, Holly did a great job looking at the Luke's perspective. Luke looks at this story from really a, a personal and a family perspective. What is it like to be, to be the mother of Jesus? And uh, uh, I'm glad that she was doing that rather than me because she has more experience at being a mother than I do. So uh, it may not surprise you that they've asked me to do the wise men. Uh, it was a near miss, but, uh, uh, but we're also going to talk today about Herod. And, uh, and just to be frank and upfront with you, uh, I tend to relate more to Herod than I do to the wise men. And so maybe uh, as we go through this, you'll, you'll see what those connections are. Matthew's perspective, because he deals with, with uh, the wise men and with Herod, his perspective isn't so much personal and family. His perspective is broader. So Matthew is thinking about the birth of the Christ child, the coming of the Messiah, in terms of things like politics and nationality and ethnicity and religion. So he has a, he has a different perspective, and, uh, and we're going to look at all that today. So uh, I want us to jump right in, and we're going to begin at the beginning, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, which was read for you earlier, which says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So in that very first verse, Matthew introduces to us the three main characters. We have Jesus, we have Herod the king, and we have the wise men. And I'm going to deal with each one of those in reverse order so that we finish with Jesus. I thought that would be a good way to do it. So we're going to do it in, in reverse order. So the first uh, group we're going to look at is the Magi. What it says, what he says about the Magi is that wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So here's a pop quiz. Everybody got their paper and pencil out? How many wise men were there? Hmm, a few people say three. They've been paying attention to the Christmas pageants uh, every year with the, you know, with the little kids that wear the bathrobes and the towel heads and everything and they come in. I mean, what would a Christmas pageant be without without three wise men, right? You could only have so many donkeys and camels and sheep and all that kind of stuff. You've got to have wise men. And a lot of these are done in small churches, so three just seem to be a good number. Three actually does match up with the number of gifts, right? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. But Matthew does not tell us how many wise men. As a matter of fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, if we were telling this story, we wouldn't be talking about three wise men. We would be talking about 12. Now, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out how they got that number, but Matthew doesn't tell us how many wise men 
And that's because that's not the point. Okay? So, he doesn't, uh, he, he also, the other th- surprising thing about Matthew, uh, regardless of how many of these wise men there were, Matthew doesn't call them kings. Okay? Now, I know that we have this great Christmas song that everybody likes, you know, we three kings of Orient are, right? We, we, love, we love that song. John Hopkins actually wrote that song. It's a very popular song. But it's all based on legend and not on Scripture. So one of the things I want to do this morning is to, is to separate out for us the difference between fact and fiction. So, the number of wise men doesn't really matter. The fact that they are not kings, uh, that that's really doesn't have any impact at all on this story. But what do we know from Matthew about these magi? Magi is simply... Uh, 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 an an English uh, transliteration of the Greek magoi. What do we know about these magi? Well, we know they came from the east. So probably from Persia. The other thing we know about these magi is that they were astronomers. Now, astronomer astronomer comes from uh, astra, which means star, and nomos, which means law. So an astronomer studies the law and the movement of stars. How, how do they move in a, in a regular basis? They were also astrologers. Astra, meaning what? Star. And logos, meaning word or message. So they also were students of what the movements of, this is a little bit like a planetarium, what the movements of those stars meant. What was the meaning behind the movement of those stars? Now today we've separated those two, uh, those two sciences, right? Astronomy is something that you can study in college. Astrology, uh, probably not. So we've separated those, and I think, I think that's probably a good thing. But these wise men could look at the movement of the stars and they could interpret their meaning. Back home in the east, they were very well respected. As a matter of fact, that's why Magi Magi gets translated as wise men. They were very well respected at home. Not so much in Israel. As a matter of fact, in Israel in the early church, people like the Magi were viewed as idolaters. They were really sorcerers. Magi is where we get the word magic. Okay, so you make that connection. So in in the early church and in Israel, these Magi were idolaters, clear and simple. Other than this story in Matthew, in the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament, they get no good press. Nobody is impressed with them. As a matter of fact, they are always viewed as people who shouldn't be included. From Israel's perspective, these magi were people who looked at creation and took meaning from creation rather than from the creator. So they were idolaters. They relied on their own calculations, their own wisdom, their own constructs. Magi uh, from from Persia is where the zodiac was developed. Uh, And they relied on all of that to deliver the meaning of things. So Israel despised these kind of people. 
They had no room for, for these kind of people, especially in the story of the birth of the Messiah. Magi were outsiders, both by race, because they were Gentiles, and by profession, because they were astrologers. To Israel and the early church, these would have been the least deserving people to be invited to the birthday party of the Messiah. But Matthew puts them in the very heart of the story. He does that intentionally, by the way. It wasn't an accident. Matthew has this kind of edge on him. In the chapter before, chapter 1, when Matthew is giving the genealogy of the Messiah, you won't believe what he includes in the genealogy. He includes four women. And one of those women was a prostitute. Matthew, his perspective on the coming of the Messiah is very different than Israel in the early church. Israel in the early church would have looked at these people, the inclusion of the four women and the inclusion of the men, and they would have said, oh my, I can't believe you put those in there. But Matthew knows that God is a God for all people. And Matthew is interested in teaching us that God welcomes people from the outside into the very center of his story. All people matter to God. And the Magi are really just walking illustrations of God's Catholicity and God's grace. Now there's one other important uh, theology lesson that Matthew gives us here, and it's very easy to miss. Primarily because of all those Christmas pageants and, and Hallmark Christmas cards. right? So every time you see the picture of the nativity and you see the star, where, where is the star? It's right over Bethlehem, right? And so we talk about how the star led the Magi to Bethlehem. It did not. The star led the Magi to Jerusalem, not to Bethlehem. See, the star is what we, what we would call today as, as general revelation. When we look at a sunset or we look at a sunrise are we at night we go out and we see billions and billions of stars? Are we see a rose open for the first time? Those kind of events in the natural world can cause us to wonder, is there a God? Is there a creator behind all of this? But natural revelation can never take us to the fulfillment of that quest. When the Magi go to Jerusalem, what happens? They hear the scripture read. They hear Micah chapter 5, verse 2 read. Herod hears it, the chief priests hear it, and the Magi hear it. And it's because of the scripture that they leave Jerusalem and go to Bethlehem. Now when they leave Jerusalem en route to Bethlehem, because that's where the scripture told them to go, they see the star and it rests over Bethlehem. But general revelation will never lead us 
to a right relationship with the one true God. Scripture and Scripture alone does that for us. God uses a star for the Magi. That's pretty cool. For the disciples, the fishermen, he uses fish. God can use everything at his disposal to awaken in people that question, that quest, that the desire to know him. And God has all of that at his disposal to begin moving a person's mind and heart toward an encounter with Jesus. So the Magi are in this story, even though they're outsiders and they're, you know, they're, they're magicians and, and astronomers, they're in this story as an encouragement to us that God is going to draw us and all people to himself one way or another. It's an, there, there is an encouragement to us to seek the one who is worthy of our worship. So that's why Matthew has the Magi in his story. He's the only one who mentions the Magi. He's also the only one in terms of the birth narrative who mentions Herod. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, this would be a great place for that scary piece of organ music. Because if this were a movie, when you would hear somebody say, Herod the king, you'd hear the scary organ music in the back, right? Herod the king, he was appointed as the king of the Jews by Caesar. So he's in place by Rome, but he is the king. Herod was a, a pretty unique person. He was a builder. So he built a number of palaces for himself. I guess if you're king, you can do that. But one of the things he's most famous for is expanding the temple in Jerusalem. And if you ever have an opportunity to go to Israel and go to the Temple Mount, you will see what is today called the Wailing Wall. It's an exposed piece of ancient wall. That wall was built by Herod. So he's an important person in in the life of Israel. And when the Magi come and tell Herod the king that they are looking for the one born king of the Jews, Matthew tells us this. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, he was the king. I get why he was troubled, right? What do you mean you're here to search out the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. But why does Matthew tell us that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him? Well, he tells us that because he wants us to know Herod was, um, how would we put it today, unstable. He was unstable. As a matter of fact, he was so bent on retaining the kingship that he had three of his own sons executed because he felt that they were a threat to his reign. Caesar Augustus had said only in part and only in jest, you know what, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So Herod is about a half a bubble off. And when the Magi came announcing the birth of a new king, Herod's fury and insanity kicked in. 
here's what, here's what the scripture tells us in verse 8. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Why did he do that? He did it to set a timetable. Because from Persia to Jerusalem, that trip would have taken between 12 and 24 months. He wanted to know, when did you, when did you first see this star? And then Herod uses the information that he gets to set the timetable for the infanticide that he orders in Bethlehem. He says, in Bethlehem, every male child under the age of two will be put to death. I told you he was not quite right in the head. It also says that he sent these uh, magi to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Isn't it interesting that he could not bring himself to say, go look for the king? He said, just go look for the child. He wasn't going to turn his, his throne over to anybody, and he certainly wasn't going to worship any other king other than himself. Now, here's the point of Herod, and this is the point that's, it doesn't feel very Christmassy, to be honest with you, but I relate a whole lot more to Herod than I do to the wise men. We may be more like him than we want to admit. Now, our sins are not as heinous and not as public as Herod's. And that's what makes it hard for us to see ourselves in him. But Herod is the archetype of raw human nature separated from God. Rebellion comes naturally. And if Jesus is Lord and King, what that means for Herod is that he isn't. He's knocked off of the throne, not just of Israel, but the throne of his own life. So he's not just the villain in this story. Herod is every man. He is every woman. He may be an extreme case, but he is not an isolated one. Because we all rebel and resist this new king. Deep down inside where sin has really taken its root. Most people, push come to shove, will do everything they can to maintain their self-sovereignty. The enticement to be the captain of our own soul, the enticement to retain our own crown, to exercise our own self-rule, to live life the way we want to live it, to sit on the throne of our own lives is powerful. And that's what Herod represents. So why would Matthew include such an unsavory character in his Christmas story? Well, the historical answer is he was there. But the bigger answer is, I believe Herod is in this story to help us see our need. That's why he's there. Remember, Herod heard the scripture being read, but his response wasn't one of worship. 
his response was to plan infanticide in order to avoid giving up his reign to this new king. In every effort that we exercise in order to uh, preserve our own autonomy, our independence, and our spiritual life apart from God is going to come up short. Our mind will tell us we can pull it off. But our soul knows differently. Our soul knows the only way to win is to surrender. And so Herod is in this story to serve as a warning to us. God wants our reverence and not our rebellion. He's important. But our series is entitled, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. So we're going to talk about Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't, doesn't speak in this story, right? He's just a little baby. He really doesn't get up and do a miracle. He's just there. But the Magi go to Bethlehem, and we have recorded in the Gospel according to Matthew the very first encounter between the non-Jewish world and the Messiah. And there are two things I want us to note quickly about this encounter. The first is that the Magi, the scripture says in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now that's, that's good news on a lot of levels. They arrive after, after the birth. but The other gospels tell us that Jesus was born in a manger, in a cave, in a stable, if you will. By the time the Magi get there, he's in a house. Somebody took him in. That's a good thing. That, 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 that's really a nice, nice thing. But the Magi, it says, they saw Mary and the child, but they worshipped the child. They did not worship Mary. They worshipped the child. So Matthew is telling us indirectly but unambiguously that Jesus is divine. In the Bible, worship is something reserved only for God. Now, a few chapters later, in chapter 4, when Jesus has grown up and he's baptized and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days and he is tempted there by Satan, the last temptation is Satan puts him up and he shows him all the kingdoms, kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. It can all be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. But Jesus reminds Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. When we get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we find the elders gathered around the throne and gathered around the throne, they are saying that we will worship him who lives forever and ever, the one who is seated on the throne. So the Magi know that this baby is not just a king. Herod was a king. But this baby is the king of kings and the lord of lords. They didn't worship Herod. They didn't give Herod any gifts. But worship and gift giving take place in the presence of this child. Meeting Jesus for the first time and every time after that elicits our worship. And worship is expressed in our giving. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But before we do, there's that second thing. 
about this encounter with Jesus. Matthew says, after the encounter, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. I don't think they picked a different route on their ways. I think they went home another way. They went home changed. Their lives were changed. The path of their life was altered by this encounter. It wasn't just an opportunity for them to worship and to give. The encounter changed the course of their lives. No one who has a genuine encounter with Jesus leaves unchanged. Now sometimes the change is immediate and it's obvious. But at other times it's not obvious at first. But no one who has a genuine encounter with Jesus leaves that encounter unchanged. So let me ask you this morning. How has Jesus changed your life? If you've had an encounter with Jesus, how is your life different? Maybe you're more generous. Maybe you're less anxious. Maybe you're more considerate of others. Maybe the despair that once, once covered you like a cloak has been replaced by hope. No one leaves a, general, a, a genuine encounter with Jesus unchanged. And if you haven't met him yet, you know, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. If you have not met him yet, what kind of change would you like to see happen? I've met a lot of people in my life who were really just looking for one thing. They were looking for just one person who would love and accept them unconditionally. Who would love and accept them exactly the way they are, warts and all. Only Jesus. Only Jesus will do that. So we've looked at the Magi, we've looked at Herod the King, we've looked at Jesus. And so I want to spend just a second to talk about worship and giving. When the Magi see him, they fall down and worshiped him, they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's as if becoming aware that you are in the presence of God elicits worship. Worship opens people up to give what they have. But we need to be clear here. They're giving gifts. They are not offering a bribe. They're not saying to Jesus, I'm going to give you this, and then later on, you're going to owe me. They're also not paying a debt. They're not even making a down payment. 
because they know that there is no amount of gold and frankincense and myrrh that's going to settle the debt that we owe to God. What God has done for us, we can never repay. You can't do it with cash. You can't do it with check. You can't do it with a wire transfer. You can't do it with a credit card. You cannot even do it with Bitcoin. The gratitude that we owe to God goes far beyond all of that. And the amazing thing is that whatever we have, which is what he wants us to give, whatever we have, he's already given to us. It's kind of like Michael's Skittles. Anybody remember the Skittles illustration? Everybody in my community group remembers that, and it's been months ago. Michael talked about if you, have a, if you have a child in the back seat and he gets a little fussy, so what you, you stop, you buy a box of Skittles, right? And you give them the box of Skittles. And man, they are just as happy as they can be. Sugar will do that for kids. They're just as happy. And then all you have to do is turn around and say, could I have one, please? No, these are my Skittles. But wait a minute. Didn't, didn't I give you those? Yep, but now they're mine. And that's what we do with God. We think everything we have is ours. But it all comes from Him. Give what you have. If you did not bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, that's okay. The only reason they gave gold and frankincense and myrrh is that's what they had. So what do you have? There's one more character here, as we bring this to a close, that's not listed in verse 1. And that's you and me. We're in this story. The Magi are here to serve as a wonderful encouragement to us, examples of how God's grace can summon us no matter who we are, where we are, what we're doing, or how unworthy we are. And if we, like the Magi, will listen to the Scripture and take His Word to heart and go to Bethlehem, we will be drawn into worship. And we will live generously and we'll be led in a new way. Herod is in the story to serve as a warning for us. He's an example of what happens when we seek to save our own lives or position. Herod resisted the Scriptures and the tragic result went far beyond just his own life. It went to an entire community and it threw them into unimaginable grief. And so today, today, you and I have heard the scriptures. We've heard them read and we've heard the story retold. And now it's time for us to respond. What will be our response? Will it be worship? Will it be giving? Or will we resist and reject him? And try to hold on because we're the captain of our own soul. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a really strange Christmas story. It's strange because it causes us to reflect 
on our own lives in relation to you. And so we want to take a moment, Lord, and just talk to you about that. So just talk to God. Lord, some of us feel like we've come from a far off place. And this is all new to us. But we hear your invitation. We hear you saying, Oh, come, let us adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.